I couldn't believe this fact, but indoor farming could have a carbon footprint that is 10 times larger than that of outdoor ag. Don't get me wrong, there's a lot of benefits to indoor farming, but when it comes to carbon, we have to do better. And one business that is looking to help indoor farmers reduce their carbon footprint is CarbonBook. They have created a platform that makes it easy for indoor farmers to understand what their carbon footprint is right now. And that's just the first step in making sure that indoor farming not only makes sense in the discussion around saving water and different herbicides and pesticides being treated, but also works towards our goal of net zero. You're here for another dose of climate positivity on the Green Business Impact Podcast. Here we highlight the amazing work of green businesses from around the world that are fighting against climate change. If you are ready to be inspired to take action, ready to hear some amazing examples of how we are working to fight the climate crisis, then stay tuned because this week's episode will be the perfect hit of climate positivity. Daphne, do you mind telling us a bit about Carbon Book and what you guys do? Yeah, thank you for the invitation to talk to you today. Carbon Book is a, a very easy to use app that we've created for greenhouse operators or vertical farm operators, anyone who's doing indoor farming. And what they can do is with very simple pull-down menus, easy to use tools, they can enter all of their parameters that create emissions or generate sequestration if depending on what they're doing and then the app calculates very quickly what their carbon footprint is for the time period they're looking at so it's meant to help the industry understand better how they're impacting carbon definitely and what do you say is kind of like the average for a indoor farming facility, depending on the size, what kind of footprint are they leaving? It's all over the place, honestly. I hate to say it depends, but it really depends. <laughs> yeah. There are facilities that have demonstrated that they can be near net zero, which is just terrific, wow. highly commendable. But there are other facilities that are about 10 times more carbon intensive than outdoor farming. So mm. it is a really wide range. A lot of it depends on how they're supplying energy to the indoor farm. So if you are, for example, using electricity from the grid that draws on coal, fire, powered plants, you're going to see a lot of carbon intensity. On the other hand, if you're in a region where you have solar energy or you have geothermal or hydro, that can change things a lot. That's just one example. The amount of fertilizer, the amount of driving, the kinds of materials that are used, whether waste is recycled or not, how much plastic is used, all of those things go into the equation, as you can imagine, just like everything else we do. And so we find that those groups that are really mindful of what they're doing can push toward net zero. And a lot of people just haven't measured it yet. Definitely. You think about indoor farming and stuff, and there's a lot of benefits to it in terms of a lot of environmental benefits. You have the ability to grow things year round. And so you have a lot of the benefits for food production because you can do it at any time in any climate, which is really helpful for climates that are not so great at growing things in, which can be really good. I never really thought about 
the other side of it, how much of a carbon footprint they are having. So I think that is really impressive that you guys have this tool that you're able to show them. And what do you feel is the impact that you're having on them to help them decrease their impact on the climate crisis? First, I want to just agree with you that there are so many benefits to indoor farming. You mentioned one, which is a year-round sustainable supply. And isn't it wonderful to have tomatoes in North America in January, right? We, right. we love it. These facilities, I think one of the biggest positive impacts of these facilities is that they use far less water than outdoor farming. And if you've listened to the news at all this year, you understand that California is in a historic drought, and that's where a lot of our food outdoors comes from. So if you're watering open field irrigation, there's so much loss of water, and fresh water is an incredibly valuable resource. And these facilities also have less fertilizer runoff, so it's better for rivers and streams, and they use less pesticide and less herbicide. So chemical kinds of treatments are reduced. So I think it's really important to have these facilities. North America, it's now about 10% of all of our produce. So it's a big deal. Yeah. But we're also seeing them built up very quickly in the Middle East, in parts of Asia, Africa, Australia. The entire world is starting to feel the impact of climate. And this is one way to mitigate climate's impact on agriculture. So your question about then the impact on the farmers, what can we do? A couple of years ago, we realized that this area was a very important growth area, but agriculture has been recently appropriately recognized as a big potential source for carbon and also a big potential sink. And so when it comes to outdoor ag, there've been a lot of companies jumping in and helping farmers think about things like regeneration agriculture, how they manage soil health, all of those sorts of things. But we hadn't seen anything like that go for indoor farming. Yet we knew that the retail side of the world was going to want to know how much carbon is being incorporated into the products they're buying. And so we wanted to get the industry ready. It took us some time to build this because it's very science-based. It took a lot of research to get this right. So I think one thing we can provide is the reporting that operations need to do for retail. The other thing we're doing is because it is sound science, we've worked with life cycle analysis groups to make sure it's accurate and acceptable. This can provide a standardized way of looking and we've seen a lot in the industry trying to respond to their stakeholders by coming up with their own way to report on carbon. And so when you look at one facility after another, there's a apples to oranges comparisons. No one's doing it the same way. So with Carbon Book, we hope to offer a standardized way so that everyone can understand who's performing well, who's not. If people want to reveal that information, we keep it private, but it, it allows you to benchmark and understand how you can do better. Yeah, definitely. And do you also help with the implementation or the suggestions for how they can perform better for these uh, departments? Today, we're really taking everyone through their first steps of measure it. First, you have to measure and monitor, and then you can improve. But our algorithms are going to allow them to run scenarios and maybe consider, what if I change the lighting? What would that do? Or what if I have less 
of this type of power source, what would that do? And uh, we have a AI capability that we've developed already. And so that's going into the next generation. But right now we're rolling out the first one and just getting everybody comfortable with monitoring. Definitely. And what you measures get to manage? You've got to start out with that first step and then you, you can get, get the next step of getting managing it and then making that's it even right. better. That's right. So that said, our reports give you a breakout of what aspects of your facility are contributing the most to carbon. And so if energy is 80% of your contribution, you might focus on an energy audit or talking to people who can help you think about how to mitigate that use. Yeah, definitely. And what kind of got you interested in coming into this space? I've been in agriculture my entire career, really, but mostly outdoor ag. And then I've also worked and run and helped sell a software company for biologists. Those two things combined, and I really wanted to do something meaningful for the environment as well. So I think there's just a lot of things we can do better. Once we start paying attention, we can really reduce, reduce our energy use, reduce our carbon footprint. I will just do a little bit of quick math here for you. It might have gone by, but in recent years, indoor farming in North America amounts for 10% of our produce. And if it's not well managed with regard to carbon footprint, it can be 10 times higher the carbon footprint of outdoor ag. And so by 10% of our use and 10 times higher carbon, we've effectively doubled the footprint for produce production in just a few years. So that wow. is going exactly in the wrong direction. And Carbon Book wants to be a part of changing that. Yeah, definitely. Wow. I, those are some well, statistics. But, yeah. And yet the irony is the point you made about steady supply, that you've always got this good supply and it looks and feels clean. A lot of people have the idea that this is a more sustainable way of doing agriculture. And so this is a moment of looking in the mirror at our own industry and saying, hey, let's get real about it. Let's really understand what's going on. Yeah, definitely. And we touched a bit on the future of indoor farming. Where do you see it going in five years? Are you hoping it's not doing that 10 times and we can reduce that 10 times increase from outdoor ag and bring it to something more reasonable? Yes. So there are many projects coming online. There's a lot of plans for new greenhouse capacity, new vertical farm capacity. I was speaking with a colleague in New York and he said, if you add up all of the projects that are coming online, it will overwhelm the grid. So I think what's going to happen is that people are going to be forced into thinking about how to build these in a way that is more of a net zero kind of situation. Installing solar collectors while they're building these facilities or using other kinds of combined heat and power and other things that have been shown to really make a difference. Putting in shading or only turning on the lights for as long as the crop needs it, not just turning it on because it's convenient. I think there's quite a lot of improvement, but I do not see it slowing down, frankly, particularly, as I said, in places that are water constrained. And as an example, the UAE is putting in massive greenhouse projects right now because they can't have food security without it. And they recognize that. Yeah, definitely. And I was also talking to another company who they are actually, they're making a corner store in the middle of like big cities. Mm -hmm. You can have these, this fresh ag like indoors and everything because of the fact that you have this food desert in the middle of cities because all the only options are either fast food 
or restaurants because yeah. they can't get the big grocery delivery trucks can't go back there and just doesn't make sense. And so right. they go outside of the city to be able to get like a food line or something yeah. like your corner grocery store. Yeah. So they've got the solution of bringing it into the cities too. So that's another benefit of these indoor farms as well. Absolutely. Oh, it's so appealing. The taste is better. The distance the food travels is shorter. So you have less spoilage, which is also really beneficial. So there's a lot of good things about it and it can be done in a way that works from a carbon perspective. Yeah, definitely. And I've also heard that there's like limitations on the types of food that you can grow in indoor farm situations. Is that true? Because I've also heard the opposite, that there isn't a limitation on which crops you can grow. So I was wondering your perspective as an expert in this field. I think more what people are thinking about what you can grow and still be profitable at scale. So there are definitely, you can find horticulturalists, whether they're at botanical gardens or conservancies or whatever that have every kind of plant growing in an indoor place. You probably have, I think most people have seen these even in major cities. You'll find everything from tropical trees and flowers to very diverse kinds of biology in there. But that said, when you come to the production mode of high-scale vegetable propagation and you're asking, how can I compete with outdoor-grown food? Then you start to run into some interesting situations where consumers will pay more for something that tastes better, looks better, and is fresher to a point. And if it costs 10 times more to make it and you're going to charge 10 times more to sell it, then a lot of consumers won't buy it. Definitely. I can see that. That, that makes a lot more sense. Because I was wondering, like, why am I getting these conflicting information? So Yeah. Oh, and we're hearing about people who want to preserve heirloom varieties also by going indoors. And particularly grape vineyards have been under so much stress from climate change, whether it's early frost or drought. And so some of those stocks are now being tended in indoor facilities just to preserve them. That's awesome. I want to shift back a little bit to Carbon Book. And you guys have the ability to give your clients like carbon scores. Can we talk a little bit more about that? Yeah. What we do is we have, with about 30 minutes of effort each month, our clients can enter the key facts about their facility. And this covers, as I've already talked a little bit. It covers energy use, inputs like what kind of soil, what kind of pots, what kind of fertilizer. It covers the crop you grow and the biomass it produces. Also, how much produce do you generate, whether that's kilograms or heads of lettuce, whatever your unit of measure is. We also keep track of transportation. Are you driving to the store to pick up supplies? Are you taking your produce to a warehouse or to a distribution center? So all of those features, also water use, many other components come together and give a total carbon equivalent use per let's say it's per kilogram or per pound of produce. And so what's coming very soon to grocery stores near you, and in fact, many companies are adopting this, is there's going to be a score 
on the food you buy that literally says how much carbon went into producing that food. And if you've got two things side by side that look equivalent and one has a carbon score 10 times higher, most consumers are going to go for the lower score. Especially with millennials and the next generations coming through, they're very conscious about climate change and about environmental issues. And they're right. going to be, it's going to be even more influential on the way they spend their money. And then that's going to put pressure back on the producers to think hard and also technology developers who can come up with better ways of doing things. Definitely. And so when say an indoor farmer goes and puts all this information, gets a score of what they have, how can they use that score? What kind of like benefits do they receive from it? Today, a lot of them are benefiting by running their operation better. That's obvious. We have simple dashboard reports that we can provide to stakeholders and those can be used. Let's say a purchaser of produce is trying to reduce their own carbon footprint. They may source from places that are more favorable. Or if they want to tell a story about the good things they're doing, our reports also talk about positives, like how much carbon did you sequester and how much renewable energy did you use in place of fossil fuels? People can get recognized as really making an effort. So that's all good. In certain areas, there are tax incentives for taking an established carbon footprint and then reducing it. And we provide that baseline but we document it with them and uh, can provide that. And then also the voluntary carbon market is paying people for making permanent changes. So if you've got, for example, incandescent lighting is supported on the voluntary carbon market for that. Yeah, definitely, which is where companies can come and buy to offset the amount of carbon that they're emitting, yes. on whatever process they're using in their company. That's right. So it can be a good incentive for people to change. Definitely. So we talked a little bit about the indoor farmer side. What about the other side with the supply chain and like higher up or further down in the supply chain, however you want to say it? One company that has, I'm sure you've covered them at some extent, but that has made a lot of announcements about this is Walmart. And I think because they are such a major retail center and thankfully at the highest levels of the company they've recognized they can improve carbon emissions as well so they and now today it's well more than half of the major companies in the world are taking the stance of saying we're going to do better and over the last few years, they've improved their own operations. That's often called scope one. They've also worked with the electric grid to reduce, that's scope two. And now what all of those companies are doing are shifting to scope three, which is to say, we're looking at all of our vendors and we're asking them to report to where they are at on carbon and how are they getting better. And we see ourselves as very much helping facilitate that reporting. They can then benefit by working with all of these suppliers and helping them improve. And I think very large companies and Walmart is just an example. There are many, Costco, Albertson, Safeway. I could go through a whole list of Kroger's, a whole list of them, Tesco, that are really thinking about this. And I think that they have the buying power to help create change, but also a lot of these small farms are just, they're so strapped, they're so understaffed, they don't have a lot of experts. If we can help that communication so that 
the sides don't get frustrated. And you can imagine if your main customer is demanding that you tell them how much carbon you've emitted and you're just a small operation with a handful of people and you don't even know where to start, that can start getting a lot of tension in that discussion. So we're here to streamline it, make it easy, help people understand. And then probably there can be programs put in place to help people reduce. So this is, this is part of our mission. Yeah, yeah, and it's always evolving. You, you're learning new things every day and bringing it all in, which is right, awesome. exactly, definitely. And how have you financed Carbon Book so far? And are you currently raising any more capital now? Yeah, this has been a very, I call it a capital light operation <laughs> so far. We had a little bit of money from some small investors and we're based in Canada. And so we had some debt financing from a development bank in Canada. And that's funded the last couple of years of doing all of the programming and learning and getting this working. So we are now actually raising a, a bit more and we're really looking for individuals or funds with an impact focus to come in and I don't need a lot of capital for this because this is more or less going to be what people call a software as a service type business model where we've already got it set up that growers can go to the website, log on, download, and then there's a monthly subscription fee. And so when you do that, and that is the kind of business I and several of my partners ran before, you can do that without a lot of staffing. So most of our staffing are the computer software developer team who take all the latest research information and incorporate it. And we're always looking to make it easier and easier for users because we know if it's painful, people won't do it. Yeah, actually right now we're just launching a kickoff to raise some money. And if you have viewers that would like to talk about it, they can reach out to me. Definitely. And we'll go ahead and talk right here. What is the best way to reach out to you? On our website, we have info at carbonbook.com. You can email that. You can also go on our website to a contact page and fill that out if you'd like, but just an email to info at carbonbook.com. We'll get you there. Great. And what are your goals for the rest of 2022 and 2023? We started rolling out the product to customers at the end of the second quarter it, for a long time was in development of a beta stage and now we're actually starting to get people signed up so we're really in a campaign to get people to know who we are that's why i really appreciate you yeah. having this interview it helps all word of mouth helps a lot and we are working with a number of greenhouse and vertical farm facilities we also are partnering with some of the industry's leaders who are demonstrating leadership from a high level and want us to come in and help them think about all of the people they supply and how to make things better. And that includes everything from the most sophisticated growers in downtown Manhattan to small subsistence farmers in third world countries. So we're spanning a huge range. And everyone has, though, the same basic issue of trying to minimize carbon. Yeah, definitely. And have you worked with any of the third world country side of things? Or is that or is we're that having what discussions. you're hoping for? We're having discussions with some of those small farmers. And there's a huge range, too. You look at places like India are very different than Mexico, which is very different than Canada and the U.S., right? So we're learning that entire range and how to modulate what we do to make it meaningful for people and still have an impact. And I've just been amazed at the incoming requests coming from all over the world, everything from Iceland to South Africa. We're just seeing a huge range of it. That's wonderful. And if you 
were to give one tip to an ecopreneur who's looking to build their own green business and really get it out there, what is one tip you would give them? I think one thing is it's important to persevere. Initially, we met with resistance from our industry. People were telling us, nobody cares, you're wasting your time, this isn't important. And now all of a sudden everyone cares, or at least a lot of people do. I think part of what is driving this is particularly for our European partners, the war in Ukraine and the change in availability of natural gas is really affecting our industry. So all of a sudden people who weren't too worried about energy now are very focused on it. So that's interesting. Laws are changing, regulations are changing. And I think people are realizing that consumers really do want things to be better. And this summer has been horrible with drought and heat. And I think everybody's realizing climate change is here and we need to do something yesterday. Right? Three or four years ago. Yeah, <laughs> absolutely. So I think a lot of times these green businesses get resistance. It's human nature. People don't like to change. And you just have to keep telling them how it's going to be better if they do this. And one of the wonderful things is you can actually save money and be greener. It just takes a little creativity. And I think initially people are worried that it's going to be expensive for them. So that I would say, show them the value proposition, show them how you can make them money and save them money. And that will help as well. Definitely. I've heard so many times there's, it's a win, win, win all around because there's always, you can benefit the planet, you can benefit people and helping them have better lives and you can also benefit the planet. So there's so many situations where that is the case. You just yeah. have to figure out the way how to make that situation work. And so That's right. That's right. And what are you currently learning right now? We're learning a lot about, it may not sound that exciting, but we're learning a lot about the power grid. That, that can be very exciting, especially with all the new renewables and everything that's being thrown in. So <laughs> Absolutely. And because we customize to every geography, we're learning how it's different in the Netherlands compared to France, compared to Missouri compared to Quebec, and also learning that many of these uh, greenhouse operations and vertical farm operations have done agreements with power companies to purchase more renewable power. And so we've had to incorporate that into carbon books so that their power purchase agreements can be fairly represented. So it's an interesting uh, conversation that's out there happening in real time between all of these facilities and the electrical companies. That's really cool. So thank you so much, Daphne, for coming on the show. It was really awesome to be able to have you on here. And I hope to be able to get you back on one day so that we can hear an update about how things have gone awesome in the past year with 2022 and 2023. So thank you That'd so much. Be, that would be wonderful. And thank you for all the work you're doing in this space. Thank you. Thank you. Yeah, it's a lot of fun. And if you enjoyed hearing about Carbon Book and how they have created a tool and a standard for indoor farmers to measure their carbon footprint, then I invite you to check out this interview with Bifarm. They are the company that I reference during this interview about having those corner stores in the middle of cities that would provide fresh produce in those areas. So make sure that you check out Bifarm and see how they are looking to end food deserts. 
Thank you for listening to another episode of the Green Business Impact Podcast. We hope you enjoyed hearing your weekly dose of climate positivity. In a world that constantly inundates you with the negative things happening, it can be great to take a break and hear some great things happening in the world. Make sure to hit subscribe on Apple Podcasts or your favorite podcast app to stay up to date with the latest and best interviews of the top minds in the green industries. Thanks again, and we can't wait to see you back here next time for another hit of Climate Positivity.